Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills and today I'm joined by Sam Williams. Thank you for making me second as always. Cal Wing. Afternoon. And Sir Bruce Fitzpatrick. Hello. Last but not least. As always, you can get in touch with us on all of our social media channels at Cookie Jar Golf on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Today, we're going to be looking at the caddies that change golf, and we're going to be going through the caddies that we think have done a good job of changing golf. We're going to start off, though, we've got off at the tournament at Jack's Place. Did we watch much of it? Didn't watch much. I caught a few uh, snippets. Workday um, Charity Open. Yes. Mm. But Cal, you were following along, weren't you? Yeah. No, that's what I didn't um, sadly miss last night, but I've skipped through snippets. Um and yeah, just flicked on late last night and saw sort of Twitter was erupting. So, oh, it was a really, good watch. Without really having to watch, it um, knew what was going on. But no, it sounded like a good, a very good joust between Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa. Yeah, it was a quality watch. It was the best bit of golf I've watched in a little while, obviously, because we've had lockdown. But it was, um, I mean, the, the first few playoff holes, the first playoff hole was insane. The putts rolled in were just. I've seen yeah. those, yeah. Well, they watched a second viewing as well on um, on Sky. They they offered a second viewing of it, which I caught the back end of um, yesterday. And it seemed like um, Morikawa just came out all guns blazing, just went nuts on the front nine, had a few birdies and an eagle. Um, and then Thomas, who struggled early on, sort of uh, lit the touch paper, as it were, halfway through his round and, and went on a rampage and eagled like 15, didn't he? But then dropped a couple of shots coming in and obviously that teed up a very exciting playoff, didn't it? Yeah. But the interesting thing about the playoff was they've both had proper nervy tee shots. So like Justin's completely sprayed his first tee shot into like the wilderness, Harrison Ford territory. And then Morikawa with an open fairway, has just dug it in the bunker. And then they both kind of hacked on, you know, done as good as they can do. And then just drained these putts from, from another state. It's just unbelievable. JT's was a monster when I saw that. It was a huge putt. 50 foot. Longest, longest putt he's made all season, yeah. I think. And what a time to do it on the first playoff hole. Um, bit of karma there that he didn't end up winning because, I, I, you know, maybe this is a bit harsh, but he shouted quite loudly, didn't he? Yeah. Obviously, you can tell without the crowd being there and he's just screamed. He was pumped, wasn't with he? Morikawa, with Morikawa still to, to putt. And it's like, okay, I'm sure you're pumped up because you've just buried a 50-footer, but screaming and... How do you think How do you think we'd get on doing that at, at our local club? Like rolling in a 20-footer on 18 and giving it there. Come on! Yeah, you'd be out the door. <laughs> you'd be out the door, wouldn't you? I don't think it'd go down too well, would it? I just don't think it's the done thing, is it? You'd be receiving words. Yeah, it's not the done thing, is it? I'd, I suspect that some players would get away with it a little bit on the normal tour schedule because if you hold a 50 footer on the first playoff hole, the likelihood is you and you're in the, you know, a major sort of PGA event, then you're going to have thousands of fans going nuts at the Mm. same time. 
Yeah. Whereas when there's a couple of cameramen and a few people wearing yeah. face masks, it kind of all of a yeah. sudden and his you just voice got, carries you just got a little bit of this. Yeah, you just got a little yeah. bit of this in the background, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, Justin Thomas sounds like he's at a rock concert or whatever with a microphone that's far too quiet, and he's just screaming his nuts off. But yeah, fair play to Morik Howard. Yeah, he some looked stones. like he was knocking pins out most most of the day, and to then follow him in with a twenty four footer was yeah, yeah some good stuff. some stones to hold that, and then. Obviously, they've gone on and um, Morikawa has gone to win it. Um, one of the big talking points was the um, the stimp speed being a bit down and how that affected the whole tournament, really. They had the, the stimp running, a, or the greens running at 11 and a half, which obviously for them is Which is slow. fast. Well, yeah. That is fast. It's fast though, isn't, as, it? isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But they've obviously... And I saw people going to Twitter saying... Um, the tournament pros historically struggle on really slow greens as opposed to really fast greens. And then when you said like 11, 11 and a half, I'm like, mm, that's quick. That's quick greens. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care who you are, they're fast. I don't care where you play or, or what courses. 11 and a half is not a slow green speed. No, it's, a, it's actively quick. I don't mm. think, you know, our home track gets up to that. And most courses in the UK won't even get near that in a year. Um, and I mean, you look at like JT's putt, which is obviously downhill, but he's played a significant amount of break on that on that first putt of the playoff hole, and it's taken like ten seconds to get to the hole anyway. So, I guess if the normal speed was thirteen, it just beggars belief what kind of putt you'd have had there. The bit that got me was the stat on the um, on Morikawa, which was you know his you know the last person to win more tour events than they'd missed cuts was tiger woods so obviously mm. he's won two events he's missed one cut woods won 43 events before he won his second before he missed his second cut and that is just absolutely staggering as a statistic i mean yeah. i just no, just, just couldn't rare, rare air for sure isn't it but we've had news of obviously we've got to pay a lip service tiger's back next week that'll be fun Quite a few guys back next week, actually. They're at least sort of DeChambeau and... Rory. Rory. But it's all because Cheers. of the big man, isn't Cheers. it? Cheers. Well, is it? Well, this week is officially sort of Jack's event, rather, than um, than the Workday Charity Open. But you can see why in... Um, the skull starts making the comeback. I think he might have got... Yeah, you've got him on speed dial, yeah, Cal. I think he might have got an invite this week. Message to Tony's heading over. Or... I think he's finished Too busy up DJing. on the... Um, I think he warmed up on the Challenge Tour in Austria this week and he's jetting over. He's finished top on the... He's finished top on the good blokes list so he gets an invite. Exactly. Exactly. That's a big win, by the way, for Mark Warren last it night. Was, That's yeah. a huge, huge win because he's been in the doldrums for a while and that, that mm. really gives him a... I mean, it's a monster-sized lifeline that one right there. Yeah. But you know, was that Challenge Tour or European Tour? It was a it was a it was a co-event, so it was European and Challenge Tour. Right. Um, but it's a, you know, it's it's a biggie for him. The prize prize fund was significantly chopped, though. I think the the overall purse for the event was I know it's only only half a million euros. Yeah, he but won. Typically, um, there are a hell of a lot more. I think he won fifty-five thousand euros for first spot. Yeah, that's. That is crazy. I know it's. I know it's. I know we're sitting there going, "God, that's mental, isn't it?" How that's nothing for four days golf, but and travel and accommodation and when you think about exactly like, I mean, there's a lot of people who've got a lot of skin in the game traveling out there in uncertain times, and it isn't a massive prize check considering that's a European Tour event. 
but I don't well, know. Mur- yeah, Morikawa's picked up like what a million, probably. At least. Yeah, Maybe probably not more. that much because yeah. the work day is probably. not that much. It'd, it'd, but certainly, it'd, the memorial would be a million up like one point two million, probably. But how do you think? Right. How do you think they're managing to sustain these purses when they're not having a single person walk through the door? I mean, something's got to give somewhere, though, hasn't it? Because yeah. you, you, the, the loss of revenue has got to be extreme. Well, it's probably reflected in that in that prize fund as well. Exactly. Who's watching the Austrian? That that's why no, that I'm talking price, about the PGA yeah, dropped. But, but well. There's just a much bigger televised audience. Yeah. There's an overall percentage of the event. But they have. Uh, they must say they must have taken a wallop, mustn't they? It's sad, and you know there are rumours on the grapevine that the European Tour is in in quite a bit of difficulty at the moment, just because obviously I guess by definition it's a tour for a number of different countries, not one that is just based. Uh, in America or primarily in America. And so the logistical challenges that are presented by COVID are far greater uh, obstacles. But it, yeah, it, it's disconcerting to hear that it, it is struggling so much and that so many um, players have been you know, drawn across to America. Obviously, the latest news is, is Molinari's um, relocating to California because he wants to play um, an American schedule. And I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the other pros you know like some matt wallace terrell hatton have, have been over there and played over in the states since lockdown anyway um but yeah it, it just just begged the question like how viable is the european tour going to be after after we're you know through all of this uncertainty because i think you know with diminished prize funds it, it it's making it very difficult to justify playing there well they're all over there now i think as you say wallace and hatton are um, i think they actually spent lockdown in florida so i think they've both got pads mm. now and that's yeah that's certainly what they're doing um it's naive to think it's not getting looked at though i mean the the one thing the u.s has going for it is it's a domestic tour largely isn't it really because mm. they, they're just moving from state to state and they've they've got this like sort of different bubble policy thing mm. going on where people are traveling together and stuff once you've got to start hosting an event in austria and then you've got to go to spain and then you've got to go to italy and then you've got to go to you you know it's just the the complexities i mean it how long can the tour survive and and then what do they do do they maybe you know is it a merger with like something like a pga where i, I don't know you know this sort of whole concept of a world tour and then do you start to have different rankings or or different kind of gradings of events if you were the golf premier league or whatever they were trying to tout six months ago i mean you'd be in a position now where you're looking at the european tour boys and you could properly pounce on them can you and say look we can give you purses we can do this yeah, they're a much stronger position than they were six months ago to try and tout that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a shame because the European Tour has had this wonderful reputation, you know, over decades of being a truly international tour that was played as you know almost the the main tour by the likes of Faldo, um, Gary Player, Seve, you know, several other legends of the game, and the number of courses or the you know the 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 premier courses that you play at uh, have been so attractive and i think you know from a viewer's standpoint it certainly offers a lot more variety visually and perhaps from a course architecture standpoint than a lot of these kind of dare i say it bomb and gouge layouts that you have on the pga tour but there's no getting around the fact that the pga tour is you know steamrolling far ahead of the european tour as far as you know from a player interest perspective um and i just I just wonder if the European Tour is really going to be able to survive 
these difficult times. Um, Time will tell. We can but hypothesise. And on the struggles of the European Tour, on a similar sort of note, I suppose, we've had confirmation of the, the Ryder Cup cancellation, which we haven't given any lip service to yet. I think that was the... the it's inevitable, call, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. Had to happen. Good call. I mean, we'll just have to wait. How you can run that without the, without the spectacle of spectators is... Uh, um, yeah. It's just not going to work, is it? So, right no, decision. Right decision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, it's a shame we'll have to wait, but it is what it is. Back to even-numbered years, or back to, back to odd-numbered years, odd I numbers. say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to odd-numbered years. Nice one. So the large majority of this pod, we want to look at the caddies that changed the game or the caddies that have had a huge impact on the, on the sport. Sam, you've got some interesting... Well, it was a random idea, it, wasn't, wasn't it? it? I just thinking of stuff to stuff that would be of interest that maybe we wouldn't have covered. I, I just suddenly thought, mm, yeah, caddies are a little bit of maybe sometimes the unsung hero in a partnership with players. And, you know, you go right back through the history books. I bet you there's some standout examples of caddies that have changed the game of golf. So, you know, I haven't spent ages looking at this. I kind of had a few people in mind and... And whatnot. So, I mean, how do we want to kick it off? I kind of got a couple of ideas. Well, but I'm just going to obviously because we like to 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 talk about history and stuff like that. But I want to. I was started my little research into this by looking at the Caddy Hall of Fame, the World Caddy. Mm, I I looked at that actually. Yeah. And there's some names in there that you see and you think, well, it's a bit ropey that these people are getting in the Hall of Fame as a caddy. But then. I realised. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here comes a sweeping statement if I've ever heard one. No, on, yeah, Bills, who, who are we going to just da- damage our relationship with forever? I, I, just I do like know. these moments. We've gone for fluff. No, no, no. No, 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 no. You'll, you'll understand where my point is now. Willie Park and Tom Morris, Gene Sarazen, okay. were all put in as caddies. And I wonder whether it's because yeah. it's the pre... I was thinking about why they're put in as caddies. But do we think it's because it's the pre-professional era? I think America has quite a... Yeah, it's got to be. And I also think America's constantly looking to endorse the caddy programs because they actually do a lot of good work in America. We don't have them over here, do we? But caddy programs in the States give people an opportunity to get scholarships, college education, better golf. And and clearly it's been a big. So why would you not want to have people like that on the Hall of Fame and decorate them considering the influence they've had on the game? But if you want to take down you know, Willie Park as part of your opening gambit, then. No, no, no. It's it's more like why are they not in there as players? Why have they been well, put in? They're not as in caddies. the World Golf Hall of Fame. It's the Caddy Hall of Fame. It's a completely separate Hall of Fame. That's the thing in America. You've got these Hall of Fames for everything. Well, you've different. got the sort of yeah. You've got the sort of local um, kind of supermarket Hall of Fame of Massachusetts, and and then a, an equal an equal one for butchers. I think it's it's nonsense. But there is a Caddy Hall of Fame, which is a a, a, a really good example of where they've got a large number of caddies who they've decorated posthumously and, and, and otherwise. And bear with me on this one. So you, the, the, the walk of stars or whatever it's called in Hollywood is a physical thing that you can go and see. Is the hall of fame a physical thing? Anyone? Is that a serious question or is it? Can you Pass, go, to, can uh, you go to, to a hall of fame and see? Are you expecting like a corridor where you yeah. can walk along and they'll have like a picture? It's probably like, like some, a museum. It's like something out of great Gatsby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There'll be a USGA museum. 
So let's kick this off with the, the early caddies then. Who's got an early caddy they want to talk about that feels like they've changed the game? I don't mind taking I don't mind I don't mind jumping in and just throwing one of mine in. So this was a name I'd read a little bit, sort of in various different books, but never in any detail. So I'd always seen his name sort of pop up in and around the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties as a as a name. But then not and then when I saw him on the Caddy Hall of Fame, I thought let's do us a bit of research. So I don't know what everyone knows about Fred Corcoran. Very little. I'm I'm looking at three blank faces here. So, so so Fred was essentially referred to as Mr. Golf um, across the professional scene in kind of certainly towards the end of his career, 50s, 60s, 70s. Let me just run you through a little bit about his bio. So he started his quote-unquote career at the age of nine. So he was a caddy at Belmont um, and he began caddying for Francis Wiemer and, and Alexa Sterling, I think kind of on a, on a fairly casual basis. And then by the age of 12, managed to get himself to the caddy master. So at the age of 12, he's managed to land himself some sort of, whether it's full-time employment or sort of intern gig at the Massachusetts Golf Association. And c- quite quickly, this is where he's had his biggest legacy on the game you could argue um so he's devised an idea for tournaments where you use colored crayons for the leaderboards and that allows the media to keep up with scoring so you know at a young age he's come up with this notion of kind of over par under par even using colors and kind of being able to keep the media up to speed so he's clearly cut someone who's massively passionate about the game but he's still at a very young age. And then he goes off to work down at Pinehurst. So he's the assistant secretary of golf, um, working working sort of almost underneath Donald Ross at Pinehurst, um, which, you know, even from the time it opened in kind of the early 1900s was a, you know, hugely celebrated place. And then you read the record books and it says, right, after that, his career started to take off. So he became the tournament director from the P- for the PGA, he was the one of the first proper sort of agents in the game. So he represented Sam Sneed, Babe Zaharias, Sevi Ballesteros, Tom Weiskopf, Tony Lima um, throughout his career. And you just think, wow, like the span of just the years that 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 kind of covers. He helped found the the World Cup of Golf. So he essentially took the the dwindling Canada Cup as it was and kind of helped bring players like Seve and Gary Player to a world stage there. And Bruce kind of talking earlier about the European tour. Uh, and he had a massive, massive impact on the LPGA. So post-World War Two, the LPGA had kind of got some events going 1945 through 1950, but then he put it on a much more official footing. So he used his expertise as essentially the PGA tournament director through the 1930s, replicated that with the LPGA, partnering with people like Wilson Sporting Goods and some other clothing manufacturers and actually got sizable prize purses running. I mean, there is so much depth to this guy. I was like, how on earth I didn't know about him was beyond belief. I'd never he, heard of him until you mentioned it, yeah. In in 10 years, as a tournament director and through the 1930s on the PGA, he took the purses from 150k to 750k, 10 years flat. Now, granted, that's probably coming out the back end of the, the Great Depression in the US, but that's still some serious accomplishment. When he got this job on the tournament director as, as as kind of running the tournament schedule for the PGA, he had things like, I think it's the Westchester Classic or something like that. And that was like the, the very much the blue ribbon event in terms of prize money. 
and and where he kind of became affiliated with Sam Snead. So for a long time, he was double hatting as both the tournament director and also a player representative. And there were some arguments around kind of controversy and conflict and whether his stable of players, he had sort of some kind of, you know, underlying motive around where people placed and where they played. But but the big thing that comes up throughout all of this is that Ultimate's guy was just a huge connector and someone who was beyond passionate about the game. To go from a nine-year-old caddy to caddy master and then trailblaze, really, through the sport in the you know 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, when you think you've got a Great Depression, you've got World War II... You know, he's had he's essentially developed the LPGA Tour onto a foundation that it is today. It's absolutely remarkable, in 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 my opinion, um, and and clearly he was just the big connector. He knew everyone. He was a fantastic salesman by all accounts. He was able to go off and kind of gain support from other people, and you know before there was even need for records and, and player statistics and stuff, the media just went to him as a sole point of contact for any kind of information, player or course related. So I hugely enjoyed reading up about him because I thought, like, wow, Fred Corcoran, like, how how people don't know about this guy is just... Quite the ascendancy. Unreal. Yeah. On so many levels as well. It's, he's done so much. He's kind of touched so many different facets of the game and kind of brought it all together under one sort of neat, roof in a sense um my caddy of choice actually is in a similar vein actually to that sam although not quite as um perhaps prolific in terms of or or significant uh i i guess when it comes to you know looking at the work he did as a as a commissioner or establishing the lpj tour or anything like that i just think that the story of eddie lowry is actually just quite a cool one um so similar to similar to um fred corcoran uh, Eddie Lowry caddied for Francis Wiemey. Um He was born in 1902 in Massachusetts and uh, caddied for Wiemey in the 1913 US Open, which is the um, event which is covered in such brilliant detail and vividly brought to life by Mark Frost and um, that great actor Shia LaBeouf as well in the film version. Um, <laughs> I don't, no, I don't know why you're being sarcastic. I don't no, it's like just Shia, nice. Shia it's great. I like Shia yeah. LaBeouf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, He's throwing his toys. It's at the just panel, nice how it? we pivoted from history to Shia LaBeouf, and, I, and it was right to do so. I just like I, I like so. wasn't laughing yeah. at his career. Um, and that wonderful account of of, uh, of the underdog taking on the likes of Ted Ray and, and Harry Varden, and perhaps the most iconic picture of that um, match, and one of the most iconic pictures that served as the the image for the PGA Centennial uh, celebrations was Eddie Lowry. Um, and Francis Wiemey striding down one of the fairways, and there's a photo of of Eddie Lowry as an 11 year old kid, which he was back then, um, with a bag that's about the size of him, and a, and a and a kind of surrounded by a throng of spectators who are all pretty serious looking and absorbed in the match, and he just looks like totally unfazed. Um, and he goes on, and obviously Francis Wiemey with his assistants wins in the playoff over Varden and Ted Ray, um, and then. Eddie Lowry actually moves, you know, to the West Coast. He moves over to San Francisco. He becomes a very successful businessman, um, fantastically wealthy through car dealerships and uh, other business ventures. And he basically becomes a, a, a kind of supportive enabler of, of amateurs who back then were still seen as um, 
kind of equally competitive with the professionals of the day. And the two amateurs in particular who he supports are Ken Venturi and, and Harvey Ward. Um, Ken Venturi goes on to win the 1964 US Open, mm-hmm. and Harvey Ward is this maverick figure who won the US amateur in 1955 and 1956. But really, I think it's the the tale of a tortured genius in Ward's case. He's someone who really should have won a lot more. Um, and basically, there's a story of, of Eddie Lowry at a dinner party um, out in um, out in California, and he's boasting about you know two friends of his or two people he's supporting are being the best amateurs, and no one in the no one in the game could beat them. And another businessman goes out the room and says, um, "Well, I've actually just had a call with a couple of friends of mine, and these two guys will give uh, Ward and Venturi a good run for their money." I think. And Eddie Larry says, yeah, sure, like whoever, just fix it up and we'll get the match sorted. So the guy makes another phone call and comes back into the room five minutes later and says, yeah, sure. So uh, I've got Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson. Um, and Eddie Larry, I imagine at that point, thought, well, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a difficult bet for me to win. I've kind of talked myself into this Tasty. one, but I've got to go, th- got to go through with it. Um, enormous sort of anticipation for this match, which they thought was going to be played at pebble beach so there was a huge crowd that gathered at pebble um the following day or following week whenever it was um and actually they'd gone down the road to cypress point and mark frost brings this event together in brilliant vivid detail just like he does with uh, the greatest game ever played um in a book called the match which i highly urge anyone who wants to know more about lowry or just you know possibly the most outrageous exhibition of golf that's ever ever been recorded and witnessed by a large group of people other than sam taking on the back nine of blackwell a couple of weeks ago <laughs> um basically yeah so they they roll up uh ken venturi who's a very sort of diligent amateur back in the day rolls up ben hogan you know mr professional and byron nelson um and they're waiting for harvey ward they're all on the first tee everyone's going where's harvey where's harvey and harvey ward sort of rolls up in his car um gets the clubs out the boot he's looking extremely hungover apparently with a pair of shades on puffing a cigar says right guys how's it going steps on the tee and just roasts a drive down the middle of the fairway and essentially i mean to cut a long story short it's a four ball better ball um Harvey Ward and Byron Nelson shoot scores of 67 on their own ball. Ken Venturi shoots a 65. Ben Hogan shoots a 63. The amateur's better ball Jesus. scores 59. And the professional better ball score is 58. Um, and as a foursome, they have 27 birdies and one eagle. So, uh, I mean, it's just That is incredible. unreal. It's just an incredible story. Um, and apparently, there was actually no money exchanged between Eddie Lowry and, um, and the other businessman who was involved in this because they were just like, we've just seen the most incredible exhibition of golf and by the time the players get to the uh you know closing holes of the back nine i think word is filtered around 17 mile drive that um the event's being played at cypress point um and the get the crowds obviously moved over from pebble beach by this point and apparently there's thousands of people there who are just in awe at this display of ball striking um that they witness and it's all really enabled by eddie lowry and that's the, the story of this guy who's a who's a caddy um just thoroughly passionate about the game goes on to support these two incredible amateurs and i mean in some sense it's a bit of a shame because uh ken venturi was asked in um in his later years you know who was the best player he'd ever seen play and um he said harvey ward hands down harvey ward and 
Venturi had played with Jack Nicholas at this point, and uh, they said, well, was Harvey Ward even better than Jack Ken? And he said, yeah, Harvey Ward would wipe the floor with him, which is obviously a pretty outrageous statement to make, given the illustrious career that the Golden Bear had. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just an incredible tale of, of um, sort of, you know, prodigious talent and um, amateur sportsmanship and a little bit of a bet on the side. So he was my um, caddy of choice. Well done, Bruce. Well researched. That is good. I mean, the obvious question in my head is, you know, why do they not have, why why was that never almost sort of like taken forward? It's like, we're going to do this more often. Wouldn't it be great to see maybe whether it's like the British Open and, uh, sorry, sorry, the Open and and US Open and maybe the the British Am and the US Am winners taking each other on in some form of exhibition match. I mean, obviously we know the answers, cash and you know, gets in the way of a tight schedule. But, I mean, that when you think about how good that must have been to see. Yeah, I mean, watching four of the best players in the world and obviously, you know, Hogan and one by of this the best courses has, in the world as well. Yeah, well, Hogan by this point has reached as close to golfing immortality as, as he possibly can. He's won three majors in 1953. The only reason he couldn't win the PGA is because it was being played at the same time as the Open in Carnoustie, I think, which was the only time he played the Open and, and he yeah. won it. So he won it. Um, this, I mean, the match took place three years later, I think, in 56. So Ben Hogan still, you know, still knows how to get the ball around, put it that way. Um, and you've just got these two sort of whippersnapper amateurs who are, who are, you know, incredible players in their own rights. And, uh, uh, Harvey Ward, is, you know, he wins the US Amateur that way, the year. He won the US Amateur, I think, the year before. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just a pretty cool story that um, is almost made cooler by the fact that people actually don't know that much about it and there's a sort of awe of secrecy and gambling associated with it. Um, I mean, it sounds far better than than the match between Tiger and Phil at uh, Shadow Creek a couple of years ago, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> Well, so moving up the time scale to the sort of late 50s, early 60s, we're going to Augusta and Augusta National Golf Club. Um, we're going, I'm going to talk about Carl Jackson, who um, who's a lifelong caddy at Augusta National, which, I mean, considering most caddies will travel the world and stick with one player, um, Actually, just to be based at one club your whole career is, um, I think, is pretty cool. Certainly yeah. goes against the system. Um, yeah, I mean, Carl began a caddying at 11 years old, Augusta. Um, he had his first Masters tournament, age 14, which pretty much includes wow. the likes of basically carrying like Gary Player's bag, and which is pretty nuts. But, and, what a great start. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome in my mind. Um, but even more impressive, um, can any of you guess who, I'm sure some of you might have read, but who was who did he caddy for for pretty much the majority of his career? Carl Jackson. Yeah. I thought it was Crenshaw. Was it yeah, Crenshaw? Crenshaw. Mm. Was it Crenshaw? 39 yeah. times. 39 Masters appearances. Essentially, he's caddied for Ben Crenshaw. And he's had fifty. Well, the Masters had you had to use a club caddy, didn't Initially, you? Initially, like yeah, in the yeah so back in the day, you it couldn't was, take um, your own caddy. Correct. There was a very nice. There was a very nice piece on Sky on it the other day, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Yeah, it was lovely. Fitted into their documentary quite well. So I mean, yeah, in total, fifty-four 
master's appearances as a caddy. Um, pretty phenomenal. And he won twice with Crenshaw, which is pretty cool. Um, mm. And he's, yeah, gone on to set up various foundations and... Well, including that very emotional um, victory he had, uh, was it in the early yeah. 90s when Harvey Pennick right. had just passed yeah. away a couple that of weeks ago? famous photo of Grenshaw sort of breaking um, down on Carl's shoulder. Mm. Oh, goosebumps. Yeah. That's incredible. 54 Masters. Oh, that's insane. Right. Um, but yeah, he's based just around the corner and absolutely loves it and... Apart from that. Did he ever move and caddy for um so no, like Ben Crenshaw at other events? No, no. Did he or did he always just stay put? Because there must yeah. have come a time. No, it must have been I'm not sure whether it was frustrating for Ben Crenshaw thinking you know, I've won two majors with this guy, it'd be quite cool to see what we can do out on the tour and the rest of the rest of the America and maybe around the world. But um but no, he's um his feet were pretty firm at, at Augusta and that's where he wanted to stay. And it's quite cool. I mean, considering, I mean, we've talked about it before that Augusta's actually open and what is it? Six months of the year, nine months of the mm. year. Yeah. Mm. Shuts in the summer, doesn't it? So not quite sure what he was doing outside of that. Um, that was quite hard to find, but um, even so, I, I mean, the guys, yeah. Yeah. He's a two time major champion. <laughs> well, as a caddy, um, <laughs> but he's still, uh, He's still filling his boots, I'm sure, or filled his boots before um, for the winter. It's interesting that time though through the caddies. Like I think there was a good one in the Golfers Journal talking about um, a guy called Iron, Iron Man Avery who um, caddied for Palmer, I think, didn't he? And it was the same sort of situation. And he used to get his massive paycheck when Palmer won, and then kind of just go and rinse it on just you know fast cars fast girls and stuff for a, for a few days and then be absolutely <laughs> flat broke and uh, it's just and and you know this guy's a you know complete hero of the of the game locally and yet there was nothing kind of until palmer came back and you know anointed his headstone and everything and and so that it was you know kind of properly mm-hmm. properly referenced really um but i think sandy's that's an he's interesting about mid 70s now so i believe he's more or less called a day. I'm sure he's actually around there, um, whether it be Caddy Master or what have you now, or, you know, focusing on the training side, new guys coming through. But uh, I don't think he's making any more Masters appearances. I'm sure he's there because I'm sure Grenshaw still goes down as ex-champion and what have you. But um, So there's a, a really speculative shout-out to any of our listeners. If you are going to go and play at Augusta National and you have enough bravado to start calling the shots with a caddy master as to who gets on the bag you think <laughs> you think putting a special request in for Carl might be the, well, that's the, thing. Might be the way I mean, forward um, like could you ask and be like I mean that's his like world famous I, I wouldn't even talk yeah. to my playing partners I would yeah, just be yeah, in his yeah. ear for the entire round he's world famous just like can you can you book and he caddied you... for the best putter in history yeah. by by many accounts yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know he could give is you that a what they say um, about Crenshaw Oh yeah, he's, sure, he's yeah. putting his little blade putter was lethal. Incredible. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's Carl Jackson's cool little story. I, I had a I had a similar one. We'll skip through it fairly briefly. When I was looking at it, I did did pull out um, Gary Player's caddy. Um, so you mentioned there that he caddied for for Gary Player at the Masters and no, Rabbit. Yeah, Alfred Rabbit mm. Rabbit Dyer is an interesting one. I sort of Hall of Fame a little bit. Yeah, he was. Um, you might say. So I think so, but then I, I looked into it in a bit more detail, and I thought it was. 
long story short, he gets on player's bag, I think, in 1972. Um, he'd caddied for him about 10 years previously and through another sort of chance encounter where he was sort of... In the in the day, I think, the loopers kind of got on the bus, went to the next venue, and then you'd pitch up and just try and get a, try and get a, get on someone's bag for the weekend. And that was what he was doing, and then he got into a conversation with Gary Player. Gary Player, I think, at the time, had sent his current caddy back home, or his current caddy had gone back to South Africa for whatever reason. And he said, look, if you can, come and caddy for me at the World Series event next weekend, which he did, and then went later went on to win. And 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 Rabbit died, you know, sort of breaks uh, breaks records in '74 by being the first black uh, non non South African caddy at the South African Open, and he's also the flat first black caddy at the Open at Lytham in '74. Um, and he, this guy's, you know, he has presence. He's six foot five. He wears a straw hat on the course, and he is littered in jewellery. Um, he's a cool cat. There's no getting away from it. And 74, massively controversial year because that's where you've got this Gary player. He's six shots in the in the lead, I think, going down 17th at Lytham, pulls his shot left into sort of waist-high rough. And they've got, they've got a huge crew looking for the ball and players saying, look, let's get this on the five-minute clock. Um, and no one can find it. And then mysteriously the ball appears at about sort of four minutes, four minutes 30, not by um, Rabbit Dara will add, by a, by a marshal or a spectator. And then very quickly after player chops out, makes his, makes his five, I think he did, or maybe six, uh, and goes on to win the tournament with that sort of famous left-handed jab off the side of the clubhouse. Um, there's the rumours, the rumour mill starts circulating that he's planted that ball there. And there's this apocryphal story that... Mm. The the ball is now sits in the in a safe at Royal Lytham Golf Club, um, which, I, I, you know, fact or not fact, I would question whether or not that story would have come about had player had a a, um, a less infamous caddy, i.e., had a white caddy that no one would have actually paid a huge amount of attention to, and was there the whole attention around having the first black caddy at the Open in in history? And I don't know, maybe that's more of a indication of. Um, the divide the and bigotry and, at the time. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like, let's let's call it what yeah. it is. Um, and I just thought he was a really interesting character because you know, player obviously played through a period of time of apartheid, and there's hugely different views on this. There's like when he got into the World Golf Hall of Fame last year, there was a lot of a lot of people saying, um, you know, should Gary Player be awarded you know World Golf Hall of Fame status on the basis that he was ambassador for apartheid during that era, and yet. You know, player and lots of other people would say he opened a lot of doors, a lot of closed doors in the game, and did everything he could to um, speak out against apartheid. And there's lots of stories that um, kind of go in both directions with it. But I just thought, as a caddy that helped shape quite an important era, particularly you know on and off the golf course, he was certainly worthy of note. Mm. Well, moving on nicely from the first black caddy, another first. She's not the first female caddy on the pro game, but she was the first female caddy to win a major on the bag, certainly, was uh, Fanny Sunnison, which I wanted to, to spend a bit of time on. So Fanny is an interesting one because she was born and raised in Sweden. And at the age of sort of 15, and before I go, actually, do you guys know much about her, her background? I know that she caddies for Stenson now. Okay. I know she caddied for Faldo. I know Faldo. absolutely nothing well, else about her. She She's was a good a, golfer. She was yeah. a really good amateur golfer. So at the age of 15, she queued up at the Scandinavian Enterprise Open in Sweden 
um, just got in line because she wanted to get on the bag of some pros just so she could see what it's all about and learn a bit. And it was the days, it was 1986, so it was the days where they just sort of picked local caddies and all the caddies got picked apart from three caddies that were left, all female. There was three girls that, that weren't picked and three, three caddies that weren't picked. Their names were uh, Fanny Sunnison, and then you had sisters Charlotte and Annika Sorenstam. No way. Yeah. Both all, well, Annika and Charlotte ended up being pros. Obviously, Annika changing the game of female golf. Um, but Fanny managed to get a player named Jaime Gonzalez from Brazil to caddy for him. And from there, she absolutely skyrocketed in sort of the caddy circle. She ended up caddying for Howard Clark in the 80s, in the late 80s, before in 89 she got picked up by Faldo. And obviously Faldo had just gone through that, probably the most successful swing change in history were then at the time and probably arguably now because you've got Tiger's changed it hugely and obviously Bryson's changed it hugely. But he'd gone through this huge swing change with, with Ledbetter and then she went on to win four majors with him over the next nine-year period. And she was the first female caddy to be on the bag and win a major. And then she got dropped by, by Faldo in 99 when she's gone on to do... A, few other bits and bobs and she's had Fred Funk and Nota Begay and Kaima and obviously now she's working a bit with Stenson but I mean she's really opened the door to having female caddies really. So Mills you mentioned she you know she's the first female caddy to win a major and, and it seems to be the case that she's possibly the only female caddy out there at her time um, on a regular basis or you know following the tour round with um with Faldo, etc. I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, Fanny Susan almost marks a kind of the final nail in the coffin of this idea that the caddy is just a, a glorified bag carrier, um, which I guess would have just naturally like, you know, been the way that, that caddies were perhaps seen in the past. And, and, you know, she's actually someone who's seen uh, as someone who can offer a lot in terms of strategic analysis of the game. And, um, you know, keeping the player on the right track psychologically, making sure they're thinking uh, in the correct manner and not getting too ahead of themselves. And, and she offers so much more than, than just simply kind of carrying a background. Is, would that I be think a, so, because, I mean, Faldo was known for his intense sort of preparation. And to be fair, during the time of his playing, he was a pretty intense dude, wasn't he? And he didn't really get along with any of the other players. Mm. Or certainly that's how it sort of seems to come across. And and Fanny's obviously understood, like I'm just, just reading here, that... She's, she's understood that she's had to be equally as meticulous and she's been known to spend five hours just walking the course and checking whether the yardage books were right, which is pretty intense. I mean, that's not someone just carrying yeah. a background. and it's probably saying, doing more yeah, than Patrick know. Reed's brother-in-law, I suspect. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, she's been known. So there's like the, the well-guarded uh, sixth of Bay Hill. She, she spends an hour on that hole. She just spent a complete hour on it, just walking it, going up and down, making sure that she had all the yards right, what clubs they were going to hit, where they were, depending on, you know, what lines they were going to take off the tee. I mean, it's fairly meticulous stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm not well versed in the, in the land of caddies. I don't know if every caddy is doing that, but it seems pretty intense stuff. And she seems to be certainly paving the way for the for the more female caddies out there. Well, I um, seem to remember hearing a few years ago that Jack Nicholas was the first player to like track yardages 
and to oh, actually right. make, make anything sort of approaching or, or resembling a, a yarded book, which you just seen. I mean, that doesn't day, sound la- right. Laser, laser range finders and that kind of thing just sounds absolutely mental, doesn't it? But it doesn't. What sound do they, right. what they do yeah, before that? They just no. went. Feels like an eight iron. Just eyeballing it. Well, no, he'd be like, you know, that's a, uh, you know, that looks about 180 yards. I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit my five iron or whatever. I guess you know, it, and if you think about it, it would it would be a fairly arduous task, wouldn't it? Pacing off things and actually mm-hmm. having to sort of stride things out or use your little what was that I little think, contraption you use when I you're in school? A, that it's called a trundle like, wheel. It was called a trundle wheel. But I think I think I mean, actually I don't know whether Ben Hogan's caddy was doing that, but maybe they were just saying, well, yeah, that's roughly 200 yards. Give it your sort of four iron or your two iron. Bringing it back to to Fanny, I mean, she certainly sounds like a, a, a very meticulous character in in that sense, and uh, I guess that the that you know segues quite nicely into Stevie Williams, who I guess is the most um, visible caddy of recent the mm. top paid New Zealand sportsman. <laughs> That's yeah, a ridiculous stat. Certainly, were to be fair, yeah, questionable whether he's still. Um... Whether he still is, I don't know. Whether certain rugby players. What does he do now? That now? Works a dang Who car. does he caddy for now? What's that? Uh, well, he's Who been does he caddying caddy for, for Jason Day, on and off for a bit. But he's more or less he's massively really? into his um, racing and what have you. So, um, oh yeah, he's racing cars, isn't yeah. he? Well, I remember that stat, like, oh, not that stat. Sorry, that quote after Adam Scott won at Firestone like years ago after. Um, <laughs> He just Steve Williams had just been fired or sacked by Tiger, and he, they interviewed him, didn't they? It's probably like the first time they've ever interviewed a caddy after mm. their player has won an event. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, yeah, like when I go racing and when I caddy, I only go out there to win, and you know, <laughs> I won today, and, and that's all that matters. And it's like, well, you you're carrying Adam Scott's bag, like it's really fine saying we, it's fine saying yeah. we in in victory, yeah. I think, as a caddy, I yeah. think I is a hugely strong term. <laughs> um, did anyone read the books? He gave Tigers massive slamming, didn't he? Didn't he give him a huge put down? I haven't read. Shall I give you a quick? Was that out the rough? A lot of people rate or? it. Yeah, a lot of people really yeah. raved about the book. Should I pile um, in for a quick? Um, yeah, tell tell us what's about. Quick biography. Mm. Well, I mean, the guy began caddying age six. Supposedly, which I think is just ridiculous. How did he walk eighteen holes at the age of six? I don't know what I was doing at six, but carrying a bag certainly wasn't wheeling someone's bag or carrying. You were just crafting your short game at six. Yeah, I was just. You were only just rising the hand. You weren't even out of a (laughs) gap. Um, (laughs) and supposedly carrying thirty-six holes by the age of ten. Strong game. I mean, this, this is, is the case of uh, this is the case of a truth getting in the way of a good story, isn't it? Is it's like, Steve's, yeah, you know, did Steve's he walk out words? of the womb with a tour bag on his shoulder? By and, uh, yeah. It's almost <laughs> abuse that asking a child to go caddying age six. Anyway, but it, he obviously had an absolute love affair with it, and um, even though he was a good player, he got down to a two handicap by the age of thirteen. Um, but supposedly, he enjoyed caddying more. So, sort of dropped um playing golf and went off caddying and um his big break came alongside peter thompson age 13 in the new zealand open he uh got in the bag of peter thompson and 
that got him a few contacts and a bit of experience. Uh, and as soon as he was pretty much of age, which was more or less 16, then he could go off and do his own thing, headed over to Europe and um, first picked up the bag of Ian Baker Finch. Gave him a run out. And he sort of made a bit of a name for himself. And then Greg Norman. Two years later, two years later, Ian Baker Finch couldn't play off. Two years later, Ian Baker Finch couldn't actually play golf. Exactly. He quit. And then Steve uh, got spotted by. Steve decided to go and psych out another player. So hang on, let's just walk this back a minute. Did he win the Open with, with Ian Baker Finch? No, I don't think Or in so. fact, Steve probably said he won no, the Open um, himself. But I think by that point, I think Norman had picked him up. Uh, okay. So he's cutting for Greg Norman at this point. Good, good exit strategy. To be fair, that could have gone south quite rapidly yeah. if he'd have pressed on there. Um, but to be and to be fair, Norman um, carried for Norman for a year or two, and Norman actually fired him. He said he was um, their relationship was getting um, too personal, and they were. Yeah, I think I think Norman was struggling to give him certain instructions because they had built quite a good friendship and. Um, whether it was seen they were having too much fun or whatever. <laughs> when you said it was work. too personal, I thought like we were going to drift. I was going to say, I thought we were drifting uh, they, into they some obscenely good clickbait. Too friendly were Norman's words. Uh, and then, yeah, after Norman, he's um, he's picked up Raymond Floyd, which, uh, what a great player. I mean, that's he's a huge character. Back... Um, I mean, do you know what? Raymond Floyd ran on the side of uh, his professional golfing career. In the immortal words of uh, Steve Elkington, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ray Floyd ran titty, titty bars T-bar. on the side. Yeah. <laughs> It's a checkered past. So he's been involved with some salubrious characters, hasn't he, over the years? Exactly. And then picks um, up Tiger, who's squeaky clean. Exactly. 1999 rolls around. and um, Just a quick just a quick one. Who did Tiger drop for Steve Williams? No idea. Fluff. Yeah. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah, that's a big connection there. Didn't know. I didn't know that until I'd done a bit of research yeah, yeah, on this yeah. one. So in the year of 1999... Uh, Tiger's coach at the time, Butch, approached uh, Williams about a job. And um, yeah, Tiger sort of gave him a quick interview and hired him on the spot. And they say the rest is pretty much history. I mean, they were pretty prolific together. All came to a bit of a sour ending. Um, one way or another, yeah, it just sounds... Well, he's, I think it's probably fair to say Steve's probably quite a feisty character and... Um, very, very driven in his own way. Uh, and then he went on to Adam Scott, Jason Day. But, I mean, getting to the stats, the guys had over 150 wins as a caddy. That's pretty incredible. So, I mean, the major count, well, what's Tiger at 15? No, 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 no. It would be 13, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be 13. Not the first. But also, he won 97 Masters. Oh, Joe yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And 97 Masters. And then did he win anything else until 99? I think Stevie Miner picked no. up a couple <clears throat> with uh, with the Shark. But, um... Oh, did he? Oh, right. But even but so... Oh, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, interesting guy, right? Like, how the hell do you get that job at 99? Tiger's been on the scene two years. He's in the market for a new caddy. Is there, are there any takers? I bet the queue was around the block. I mean, Butch Harmon was essentially the... I mean, he was the key well, kingmaker the there, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he was yeah, the kingmaker. Yeah. So, Tiger... And yeah. what's... Um, exactly. 
the, probably the best Steve Williams or the worst Steve Williams story. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> one of the best yeah. is probably. I mean, um, he wasn't afraid of um, the camera. Yeah, tackling the odd photographer. Yeah, it's got to be so the camera. Usually, hasn't it? it was usually like a spear tackle followed by a camera thrown into a lake or a hedge or something like that. Mm. No way. Do you know here's a quote about Mickelson? I wouldn't call him a great player because I hate the prick. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I mean, it's pretty intense stuff, isn't it? Well, but there was another great story um, where I think Tiger and Phil went and played an exhibition match out in Japan many years ago. And, um, oh, no, sorry, it was out in China. He went out, went out to China. That was it because um, apparently Phil was just laying it on thick at a press conference just saying, yeah, I just absolutely love China. You know, want to come on holiday here, my family, just being totally disingenuous. So I absolutely love Chinese food. Yeah, sushi's incredible. And Tiger <laughs> and Steve apparently looking over, just being like, this guy's just so disingenuous. It's unreal. And um, I think the host who'd put it all together um, and, and obviously paid these, these huge appearance fees to the two pros, then walks over to shake Tiger's hand uh, the following day on the first tee box and Steve obviously sees this guy walking over, doesn't know who it is. And I mean, apparently the account's correct. He just literally sticks his arm out and clotheslines this guy, WWE style and stops him from getting anywhere near woods, which is another outrageous thing. But yeah, he was, he wasn't afraid of protecting his man, was he? Big guy, big unit. Um, But yeah. And then obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, sort of at one point in time, New Zealand's sort of highest paid sports star, in my view. And Mm crazy really i think he's um i think he made over 20 mil which is a lot of money yeah for carrying a bag it's not bad is it yeah i mean it's interesting i mean without wanting to label the point too much i think it's a shame that his career or certainly the you know his visible career when he was on the bag of adam scott kind of came to a such a sour end with those um pretty poorly worded remarks about tiger at several dinners and in interviews yeah, a shocker, and that kind of thing it? uh yeah i mean they were just totally insensitive weren't they and um just 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 downright wrong um and then added to which i think he kind of shot himself in the foot when you know he went on that rampage after adam scott won at firestone saying yeah, you know, I, I, I win when I go caddying and I win when I go racing. And then, you know, however many months later it was, Scott bogeyed the last four holes um, at Lytham mm. to lose by one. So yeah. it's a bit of a sort of unfortunate end to what was a really incredible career. But you know what? You might not have heard the last of him. Wouldn't be surprised if he uh, engineers a, a comeback for J-Day. No, you never know. All a good discussion, though. Yeah. yeah, well researched, chaps. That was quite enjoyable. Yeah, good 40 minutes there. If, yeah, enjoyed um, doing that. <laughs> if you uh, have any thoughts or comments, did we miss anybody out, get in touch with us at Cookie Jar Golf. Um, but as always, it's been a pleasure, and we will speak to you next time. Adios. Thank you. Watch Adios. this.